In 2022, OECD podcasts did not shy away from the hard issues plaguing society today. Misinformation, domestic violence, and burnout are only a few of the topics discussed this year with a variety of experts. I'm Robin Allison Davis, executive producer of OECD Podcasts. Let's take a listen to some of the best podcast interviews done this year that you may have missed. Welcome to OECD Podcasts, where policy meets people. For some people, their only safe place is their place of employment. In the latest Truth Hurts episode, done in partnership with ELS, the OECD Directorate for Employment, Labor, and Social Services, Monica Kaiser spoke to Margaret Johnston Clark of L'Oreal about their One in Three program, a workplace program to help end domestic violence. Since you started the initiative, I suppose you've had many cases coming forward and people who you could help. So what we've done is actually we, so we started by the training because there is so much stigma attached to domestic violence or intimate partner violence. So the idea was to also explain what that entails. And it's not only physical violence. It's not someone who's bruised, who's going to be talking. It might be someone psychologically or economically offended. Then we wrote an HR policy dedicated to domestic violence. This policy has now gone global. So it's in all of our entities worldwide, but it was an inspiration for us. We wanted to really lead the way. We were very vocal during the ILO convention on this matter in 2019, and we actually invited other companies to join, to speak up, and to really uh, put pressure on to make sure that that convention 190 was going to be passed. So this was about harassment and uh, abuse in the workplace, but with a specific focus on domestic violence and the role that companies should play. So you find out that you have one or several employees who are struggling with this, um, who are being harassed, who might be followed to the workplace, who are scared, who you might even see some traces of, of domestic violence. What in very concrete terms are the steps that the employer takes then? So our responsibility is really to fight against all form of gender-based violence within the organization, but also outside of the organization, because this is a way of avoiding maybe, you know, traumatic events to happen. So it's not just an HR matter, because in the study we conducted, we noted that most of the survivors don't go and speak to their managers or to the HR. They speak to a colleague when they want to open up and seek help. So we need to make sure that we are able to detect those signs and ask the right questions because you will get a certain behavior, maybe um, less of a concentration. You will have noted certain things that timing, for instance, one of the things is important. This is something we noted at L'Oreal. There were after our you know, drinks and people getting together. Most of the survivors tend to have to leave at a very specific time. They would miss all that. So what happens is also they often get isolated from their own teams because they're on a very kind of strict regimen. So our responsibility is basically to spot or at least be in tune when someone doesn't seem to be going well, to ask the right questions in case they are a survivor. And then the question is making sure that they understand that this is a safe space and that they can disclose and speak freely. The most difficult part is when the survivor decides to leave their partner or ex-partner. That's where a company can actually 
jump in and offer maybe housing, temporary housing, help for daycare. Like in our case, we work with different daycare centers for, for young children, maybe finding a spot for a, a young mother. Um, so this is where we can, giving time off, enabling the person to go and see an attorney or seek help. And then obviously, as I said before, orient towards the right NGO. That's about as much as we can actually offer, really. Well, those are a lot of very good programs and a lot of help. Margaret hopes that other companies will follow suit to help end domestic violence. Climate change is always a big topic at the OECD, and this year was no different. But there are various aspects of climate change to be explored, such as the nexus of climate change and gender. Christopher Mooney explored this nexus with the OECD's Ingrid Barnsley. So your team's research at the OECD shows that when gender and environmental degradation intersect, risks and inequalities worsen. Why does it affect women and, and, and men differently? On the one hand, we have the differentiated effect of environmental degradation and climate change on women and men. While often overlooked, these environmental impacts tend to affect men and women differently because often women are starting with predetermined economic vulnerabilities. So if they already have less access to resources, uh, if there is already underlying discrimination, uh, they already have predetermined vulnerabilities, um, environmental degradation is going to exacerbate those. On the other hand, we have a very positive, interesting interlinkage, Chris, which is that women's preferences and behaviours, interestingly, in relation to um, the environment, appear to be different from those of men. Um, it seems that women's preferences and behaviours often can be positive in terms of their potential for the green transition as decision makers, as influencers, and also as economic agents. Women spend money. It's not only men that spend money, and women spend a lot of money in the household. They are strong economic agents of factors that can have an impact on our environment. And what we're seeing through a range of empirical studies is that women tend to make more sustainable choices in their daily life than, than men. For instance, around energy use or their mobility patterns, more likely to walk than drive, more likely to use public transport than, than, than drive. Um, and they seem to be more concerned about climate change and environmental protection, whether that's connected to a, a natural uh, component of, of care for children or care for, 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 for the future life of their children is, is, is unclear and needs to be further explored. These development goals that we have, these sustainable development goals uh, for 2030, for example, or for mid-century, are we on track? Are we moving in the right direction? Are people finally coming and, and treating this seriously? It's a difficult question. I think um, I'll give a nuanced answer. It, it's very easy to stand back and criticise. It's very easy to say, you know, we're failing dismally. Are we better off for having those sustainable development goals than not having had them? I think, yes, we absolutely are. Have we achieved them in full yet and are we going to? No, I, I think the answer is that we will fall short. But having, having a, a framework and a, a common and shared sense of purpose around how we can achieve our, our sustainability goals for our planet, along with our economic and social development goals for us as humans, as humanity, having a common framework, a shared framework across all countries, 
to measure and track that is in itself a very important success. And when it comes to gender, embedding gender equality as a consideration within the environment-related sustainable development goals needs to be improved. We have gender considered in a number of them in relation to, for example, water, sustainable production, the climate, energy, cities, um, sustainable development goals do indicators under the SDGs do already have gender disaggregation. But in other instances, the, the, the environmental SDGs and their indicators have not yet properly and fully considered sex disaggregation to the extent we'd like them to. And, and Chris, we were just talking about human behaviours and, and the potentially the differences between women and men in terms of how they understand environmental and climate science and how they respond. Well, in answer to this question, if we want to better achieve our sustainable development goals, it would help us to break down that data uh, between men and women as well, so that in turn we can tap into what works for women may not always work for men, for example, and and hopefully lead toward better better progress, I would say, toward our SDGs. As we can see, there's more work to be done, not only when it comes to climate change, but on climate change and gender together. But how are decisions made on what personal actions we should take when it comes to curbing climate change and reducing our carbon footprint? This is where behavioral science steps in. I spoke to the OECD's Chiara Verrazzani about how it works and how the OECD is helping. So how are governments using behavioral science? When you think about it, most of public policy challenges, so think about climate change or things like digital transformation or even corruption or, I don't know, the spread of fake news online, all these big policy challenges involve human behavior. But the fact is that even if we are aware of it, it's true that most policymakers and traditionally public policy really often assume an unrealistic uh, model of human behavior. So we tend to assume that uh, people, citizens, policymakers, corporation, everybody will just uh, behave in a predictable way. So we assume that giving information on health, for example, it's enough for people to change their behaviors. We actually know that it's not the case, right? Uh, so we know that it's not enough to tell people that smoking is bad for the health. Uh, a lot of people still smoke. And you can think about so many examples like these. So really, behavioral scientists like me, who work in governments around the world, try to understand the barriers and the biases uh, faced by people and organizations to achieve a certain goal. Using behavioral science will allow you to, to support governments to really base their solutions on real evidence of how people make decisions, and also to design policies that are centered on humans, not on models of how humans should behave. Do you have examples of how behavioral science has impacted policymaking? Yes, of course. So the use of behavioral science in public policy is quite recent. One of the first projects of applied behavioral science was trying to get people who were late in paying their taxes to pay their taxes on time. And so they basically sent letters to citizens who were late in paying their taxes. And um, they did an experiment in which they will send letter, different letters to different people. They tried to add one single sentence to one of these letters 
saying that the large majority of people in the neighborhood, for example, they pay taxes on time. And this is a very simple, like one-on-one behavioral science technique using peer pressure or social norms. And so this simple letter in only one year, um, they were able to, uh, to increase the revenue of taxation by 200 million pounds just by sending this single letter. The OECD has a repository of behavioral science projects. You lead this program. Can you tell us a bit more about it? The idea of this repository is to really be a knowledge hub for behavioral science as applied to public policy. So the first functionality is to have a repository of projects led by behavioral scientists or behavioral science specialists in public policy. And so uh, you, you're, you, you can jump in and uh, basically upload a project about, I don't know, you're trying to, to boost uh, vaccination rates in Uganda uh, for a specific thing, or you're trying to change the behaviors of someone else in another part of the world trying to, uh, to increase the uptake of um, green energy, for example. And so you have a lot of people um, uploading projects uh, while they're doing these projects on behavioral science. And from, for someone who is not part of kind of the behavioral science community, I think it's, I hope that it will be a great um, space because you can actually uh, use it almost at, as a review tool. So you can, uh, it's, it's free, so you don't need to, to log in or anything. Uh, you see this map and you're able to filter things. So for example, you're interested in trying to see who is trying to um, to, to change uh, vaccinations behaviors around the world and what kind of solutions or techniques they're using. And is this working or not? And if it's not working, why is it the case? Uh, you can have a better sense of what's going on around the world uh, in terms of behavioral science applied to public policy. You can visit the OECD's repository of behavioral science projects at oecd-opsi.org. This year, we partnered with the OECD Education Directory to bring you even more podcasts on the topics that matter. In this particular podcast, Clara Young spoke with Pascal Guy, a teacher at Lycée Turgot, about the innovative hip-hop Turgot program, a Parisian school program to help students gain self-confidence and ultimately earn better grades. I've also come across uh, students who have said that um, before joining the, the hip hop program that they were really having trouble at school mm -hmm. and that they were about to quit. Yeah. And because of the hip hop program, they went on and went through the baccalaureate. Yes, because they, they succeed when they dance and, they, and people see them and people uh, tell them how good they are so they they find they're good at something and uh, we we only try to make them use this success in another in a different area and we say okay you you cannot be uh, wonderful in mathematics but you can make progress you, you remember at the beginning of the year when you were doing this in hip-hop well that was not easy but now you you you're doing perfectly well so you're doing it perfectly well so you can do that as well in mathematics you can do something to get better and they try to apply this to so this is actually growth mindset, the yeah. giving students that belief that they can do better. Yes, mm -hmm. we want them to believe in themselves. Yes, absolutely. We want them to think they can make it. 
because some of them arrive at school at Turgot and they would arrive at any other school thinking that they're worthless. Right. And we're trying to restore their worth. We're trying our best. I'm not saying that we succeed all the time. It takes an awful lot of time. We go to great length to achieve this, but we do. And I think they feel more determined at the end and uh, they have more self-worth. Because determination, that word in the French slang, they say déter. Déter. That, that seems to come up a lot. Uh, <laughs> yes, it does. In, yes, it with, does. With the students. And is that something that the that the kids come into with the program already, that's part of their character? Or is it also something that the program helps them develop? Oh, I think it's it really depends on the kids. Some of them join the program and they're very determined. Hip hop is their life, really. So they want to, well, they do everything they can to get better and to participate in all the events and to share, etc. Others are not that determined and it builds up and I think this is where David is uh, excellent. Uh, it, he, he succeeds in building that spirit. There's a team spirit that is built uh, as days go by. And uh, I think that's this family thing which gives them the determination. Because when a kid is not very motivated and he sees older dancers dancing and sharing with him what they know, then little by little he starts thinking, maybe I could do better. Yes, and most of the time they do. It's also build up thanks to the dancers. Uh, we have professional dancers mm -hmm. that come uh, to Turgot um, and to work with the kids uh, sometimes. Not very often because we don't have uh, <laughs> a lot of money <laughs> to pay them. <laughs> so it's uh, thanks to uh, the Paris Education Authority that we can pay uh, for those uh, people. But they are hip-hop dancers. And, uh, and of course, this is very motivating for them, having professional dancers uh, in front of them. So uh, what I'm hearing is that there's there's a lot of uh, social and emotional support yes. through this program yes. for 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 these students, and and that's such a tricky age. Yeah. It's quite yes. a fragile time in most of our lives at, at that age, and um, mm -hmm. that that just makes me think of you know the OECD did an international survey on social and emotional skills. Mm -hmm. um, it was of 10-year-olds and 15-year-olds that uh, we did in, in 2020. Yes. And the, the survey did find that they become much more vulnerable when they turn 15. So this, this program seems to be very important in providing that support. As Clara showed us, there are many ways to support students, including through breakdancing. This fall, the OECD Director for Public Governance held a Building Trust and Reinforcing Democracy Ministerial in Luxembourg. They tackled many issues, including misinformation and disinformation. I spoke with Julio Basio Torres on their impact on democracy. Indeed, technology has been, in this case, a double-edged sword. Can you tell us a little bit more about the impact of disinformation on democracy? I mean, in concrete, what I mean here is the amplification of mis- and disinformation can convince people to believe things that are not true. And this can be especially harmful if, if focused on demonizing political opponents, in distorting policy debates, or undermining democratic institutions. Broadly, the spread of what we call fake news or disinformation makes it more difficult to access timely and accurate information for people. So it can undermine 
the people's willingness and ability to engage in democratic life, and down the line, the ability of society to force con forge consensus. So, unfortunately, I think we are already evidencing this uh, in, in most societies around the globe. So building on what you just said, it sounds like responding to disinformation needs a systemic approach. What is the OECD's contribution to this? We are not just looking at mis- and disinformation, but rather looking at how we can build uh, resilience and reinforce uh, information integrity, how we can create the conditions for informa information to be reliable and be transparent and be authentic information. So supporting information integrity and more specifically counteracting the, the threat posed by mis- and disinformation is a system-wide problem. This is what we mean by systemic approach. They will require governments to pursue a systemic and a whole-of-society approach, much beyond just working with social media companies. This is what we call this systemic response that would be about first building and creating the capacities across the whole of society for citizens themselves to identify disinformation and act upon it, but also establishing the needed government architecture to deal with this challenge, which is in many ways new, and that's why governments need to adapt and create the mechanisms internally within government to address this challenge and to take the specific measures or adopt the policies that will correct what I will call this disinformation distortions or distortions to disinformation integrity. We also published a podcast in July about digital literacy and disinformation. I invite you to take a listen. Tourism took a huge hit during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, but things are on the upswing. Jane Stacy spoke with Sergio Guerrero, chair of the OECD Tourism Committee, about what we can expect in the future. And there's been a lot of talk since the start of the crisis, a lot of focus on using this disruption to really rethink about the kind of tourism we want in the future, really thinking about how we go forwards, not backwards, and avoid a return to many of the, the issues and challenges that we had with the pressure in the environment, local communities uh, before the crisis. And also you mentioned the issue of sustainability and tourism has its part to play in, in climate action and meeting net zero targets. It sounds like you're quite optimistic that this transformation agenda is being seized within the sector and um, and we are moving. Do you see areas where more can be done and you know so that we keep this momentum um, on these longer term, the sustainability agenda on 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 being prepared, better prepared for future shocks also? Absolutely. What, what I was just saying, uh, first, the fact that sustainability didn't get out of the of, of the priorities agenda of, of countries, it's it's absolutely. Uh, critical and and I, I think also covid brought another thing the, the discussion on sustainability practices has been built and i think in the right way as as a supply driven agenda um, because typically it, it was governments pushing for or industry pushing for transformation but also this is becoming part of the of agenda of, uh, of demand demand is, is starting to take this into into consideration and here in, in portugal we, we we've we've set our strategy in 2017 putting sustainability at the core and establishing ambitious goals in terms of economic social and environmental uh, practices and i'm quite happy to to see well and we've been discussing this in the in the committee and then i think 
tourism transit policies with oil also show that that several countries actually shifted their policies towards sustainability. I can I could mention Switzerland. I could mention Slovenia. I can mention um, the, the recent national tourism strategy from the U.S. I can and I can even mention and I think very important one also the EU transition path that the European Commission launched. All of these are building blocks that take the general model of development of tourism towards new values. And also the industries is taking this very seriously. You think if you look at the main hotel chains in the world, all of them are very aggressive and very complete and comprehensive uh, sustainability reports. So it's it's not something that it's it's a buzzword. It's something that actually is, is making their way into the model of, of the industry. Sergio, this is the OECD, so we can't end the discussion without speaking about data, a topic which I know is close to your heart also. A big challenge during the crisis has been to have the data and information needed to make decisions, and governments and businesses are increasingly turning to new data sources to help fill these gaps. How do you see the use of these new data sources to support the recovery, and what exciting innovations maybe lie ahead for us? I think COVID from that point of view, and probably one of the only positive consequences of that is, is data become needed. And, and like, like never before, uh, everyone was, was, was looking for data and asking what's going to happen. And, and now it's also the case. So we, I believe that this transformation of, of perce- perception of the value of data for, for decision making is here to stay. And this means for us that, first, we have one agenda that we have to build, and I believe OECD has a, has a role to play there, which is strengthening the, the tourism statistics system, so improving the, the quality of, of the, the statistics available, but at the same time, the, the, the need to explore new sources of data that are out there and quite useful to, to actually help us on this side. And now thinking about mobile data became, uh, I would say, very common in terms of, 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 the, of the use, I think. Uh, information from bank bank cards, debit cards, and and credit cards are also very, very, very important. Airlines data for for us in in Portugal it became, I would say, the most important to, tool to understand the future, because there's where people uh, will will go in the, in in the first place. And and I believe these tools are are useful for two important blocks of our agenda. One is competitiveness, that's what we're talking about, but at the same time, also very useful to, to, to sustainability, to manage destinations, to understand where constraints are, when constraints are, and where specifically they are, and so we can actually act. Thank you for listening to OECD Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this look back at some of 2022's podcasts and will join us as we bring you more episodes in 2023. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share on your preferred podcast platform. To listen to other OECD podcasts, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and soundcloud.com slash OECD.